0: a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going
1: pretty well. Uh, I think I, like most Americans, are kind of excited maybe to do a little bit of long put-off travel over the summer, uh, you know, with COVID-19 restrictions lifting. A lot of people are hitting the airports and the roads. And I suppose that would include Supreme Court justices, no? They used to keep a pretty busy schedule.
0: I know. uh, You have to wonder, like, who might be itching to, like, get back to the the circuit for speeches and panels and law school, you know, shindigs.
1: Yeah, who, who's teaching a course at like Ready Mead or, or or who's going fly fishing in Colorado? I think we know the answer to that one. But in any event, Supreme Court justices, unlike lower court judges, along with executive branch and legislative branch officials, don't have any formal ethics rules for when they do travel and you know information that they're required to disclose because they are I'm not so surprised valid. by that. Yeah, they're just, I mean, like so many other things in the uh, Code of Conduct for U.S. judges that doesn't necessarily apply to them, at least formally. And so that was the subject of a, of a pretty interesting letter sent to the U.S. Marshals Service on Friday from a group of bipartisan senators, too. that is, um, Sheldon Whitehouse, we've had him on the podcast before, and uh, Louisiana's uh, Republican Senator John Kennedy. And so they're hungry for more information about all the trips that the justices have taken outside of Washington, D.C., where they were actually accompanied by the U.S. Marshal Services, which is supposed to be their, you know, protective service agency. And they say that this will, quote, help us assess how disclosures by members of the court accord with judicial branches disclosure standards. So this is the, the broader context of this little update for you guys is that this is part of a kind of an increasing chorus of calls for the Supreme Court justices to be bound formally by some of these ethics rules. And so White House and Kennedy kind of requesting this info from the marshal service is part of that larger conversation.
0: Also, I feel like it's just part of that larger conversation of like more scrutiny on the court and just exactly how they operate, you know.
1: I think that's behind, sort of fair. I mean, we've seen behind White the House. Curtains. <laughs> yeah, we've seen White House in his um, new uh, chairmanship of a uh, court's subcommittee put like a lot of scrutiny on the Supreme Court as of late. And so this is just um, part of that. But rolling along here, uh, there was kind of an interesting orders list that came out on Monday, right, Natalie?
0: Yeah, so, you know, we've had a couple of like fairly big orders lists uh, the last few weeks as they're kind of just trying to shuffle off, you know, what's on their docket. Um, But there was an interesting cert denial on Monday uh, where the court rejected a case that would have looked at the male-only military draft. Um, And it basically would have forced them to revisit a decades-old precedent that they have backing the constitutionality of the male-only military draft. Um, Around four decades ago, the court had upheld women's exclusion from the Military Selective Service Act. Um, So notably, though, when they denied this case, uh, three justices in a bit of an interesting lineup, uh, Justices Sotomayor, Justice Breyer, and Kavanaugh, They made a point of issuing a statement alongside the the denial, basically saying, you know, this is up to Congress to update the law. It's not up to us. And and they did note that, you know, lawmakers have been looking at that possibility. There was like a March report from a commission uh, that recommended eliminating the mail only registration. So right now the ball is in Congress's court.
1: So it sounds like it's kind of a. You know, perhaps a little signal to to Congress that, you know, if they want anything to change, they're the ones that got to do anything about it. Um, But it wasn't just cert denials on Monday, right?
0: Yes. So on Monday, the court agreed to take up a case. that's actually going to look at a bit of an interesting topic, uh, state secrets. Um, They are taking up a Ninth Circuit case that involves the FBI unlawfully surveilling Muslims in Southern California based on their religious identity, or at least that's what the proposed class action is um, alleging. Uh, the surveillance was part of a purported terrorism investigation. So taking up this case means that the court is going to decide um, just how to apply the state's secrets privilege, you know, which shields in- sensitive information that the government believes might endanger national security from judicial review.
1: So we're going to find out a little bit more about this, obviously, when it comes up for oral arguments next term, which could be, you know, anywhere from, you know, the late fall to potentially even the new year with the amount of cases that have been piling up. But just for now, uh, can you kind of give us a quick brief about, you know, what brought us to this, um, you know, the issues in this case and
0: what's at stake? Yeah. So basically the suit started in 2011 with three men who were allegedly investigated under this investigation. Uh, and they sued under a bunch of claims, but most of them were tossed out after lower courts found that litigating the claims would risk disclosing s- secret information from the FBI in- investigation. Wound its way up to Ninth Circuit, which was like, wait, no, we, you could have found a way to look at the claims without revealing state secrets. Some of the claims should have held up. So now it's Justices, uh, the Supreme Court will be deciding, just you know, where that line is drawn with state secrets and judicial review. So that was kind of the orders list, but of course, it was another big week of opinions.
1: That's right. There were only two opinions this week, so that means that the still the court still has over twenty to go in the weeks remaining before. What usually is the end of the term, right? At the end of June, I think you and I are both kind of getting nervous that things might be taking a little bit longer than we had anticipated, but uh, we got two more this week in relatively low profile cases. The first actually came out this morning in Borden versus United States. It's a case involving the Armed Career Criminal Act, a a provision of the Armed Career Criminal Act, I should say, that provides longer sentences for so-called career criminals who are found in possession of a firearm with three or more convictions for violent felony. So the question kind of in this case, Natalie, is what is a violent felony because the petitioner Charles Borden had argued that you know one of the so-called violent felonies um, that he was used to kind of trigger that enhanced sentence was a conviction for reckless aggravated assault and according to his attorneys reckless aggravated assault actually doesn't qualify as a violent felony because it doesn't have the requisite intent element of you know mens rea. So this is essentially what the Supreme Court said this morning on Thursday that a conviction for reckless aggravated assault is not a violent felony under the definition of violent felony in the statute because it's not actually aimed at another person. Now notably, uh, Justices Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas actually joined with the liberal justices on the court to form that, you know, five justice majority in reverse. Um, uh, Borden's enhanced sentence under the ACCA, often referred to as ACA. Um, just one small note here is that even though it was Gorsuch and Thomas kind of helping form that majority, Thomas actually wrote separately, adopting his own reasoning, whereas Kagan wrote the opinion joined by, the, by justices Gorsuch and the liberal justices, whereas um, uh, Roberts, Alito, Kavanaugh, and Barrett actually dissented.
0: I know this was welcome news for several defense lawyer organizations who had filed amici briefs and been worried that the court would potentially expand the ACCA's reach with this case and, you know, potentially expose many more people to longer sentences um, for, for for crimes such as, you know, distracted driving that might not necessarily involve intent, as was, you know, at the heart of this case. Um, Jimmy, I know there was also another big case, though, this week that had some pretty broad-reaching implications. Want to break that one down, too? Yeah, this one was
1: called Sanchez versus Mallorca's handed down on Monday. It is arguably, I'd say, the biggest immigration ruling of the term with broad implications for the more than 400,000 recipients of a government program called Temporary Protected Status. Now, for those who don't know, this is a form of deportation relief and work authorization given to immigrants from designated countries in crisis. And so this case involved a couple from el salvador that had been in the country i think in new jersey for you know quarter of a century 25 years and had essentially applied to adjust their status to lawful permanent residency lpr also known as a green card Um, their application was rejected because their original entry to the country didn't come through you know a recognized port of entry Um, it was unlawful Um, under the immigration laws and so the question was you know does immigration law provide kind of a pathway for tps status holders to adjust their status to lpr status even if they originally entered the country unlawfully
0: and so i think the one one thing to highlight is the tps status usually comes after the entry like it's not something that comes with entry lawful or unlawful into the country right
1: Co- correct, yes. Okay. It's something that, that that you can apply for. Um, now, writing for a unanimous court, Justice Elena Kagan, who, I should say, had the other um, opinion for the court in the case that I just earlier uh, was talking about, um, she says that TPS holders who came here unlawfully can't actually use their TPS status to become green card holders. And so, under her view, the Immigration Nationality Act, quote, generally requires uh, lawful admission into the U.S. before a person can obtain legal permanent residency. And the court defines lawful entry into the U.S. to mean after inspection and authorization by an immigration officer. So basically what the the couple here had argued was that under the legal definition of um, non-immigrant status, and non-immigrant status is something that you achieve through your TPS status. This is kind of where things get a little bit complicated but the argument was that through their non-immigrant status from TPS, they were effectively, legally speaking, um, admitted to the country, and so therefore they are eligible for green cards and lawful permanent residency. This is something that the Supreme Court flatly rejected, um, which, I, as I said earlier, is going to be kind of a big deal for you know the, the, the more than 400,000 TPS holders in this country, many of whom are here in, in D.C. and metro areas all across United States um, from the various countries that are designated as TPS countries, uh, many of whom um, actually, you know, would fall into this category of not having actually come here uh, lawfully in the first place. And so that's a kind of a blow to those individuals who will have a much harder time adjusting their status to lawful permanent residency as a result of this ruling.
0: Definitely the big one for the week. um, But as you said... We've got Betty Moore, hopefully, to come in the next few weeks. Uh, it seems like Justice Kagan's clearing off her desk, as you said.
1: Yeah, does Justice Kagan's kind of prolific writing this week mean she's off the hook for some of the big decisions of the term? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and find out.
0: Well, Jimmy, this has been great. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in
0: this week. We'd like to thank our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank our contributing reporters, Ann Cullen and Daniel Wilson. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to lawthrough60.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law Through 60 the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.